What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Anthony Grafton, the Princeton Professor of History, whose latest book, Magus, is a history of the skill that any half-talented practitioner of doesn't want anyone to really know how it's done. Magic. Joining Anthony in conversation for this episode is Dr. Dimitri Levitin, an intellectual, cultural and religious historian of early modern Europe. Let's join Dimitri now with more. Well, hello and a big welcome to Anthony Grafton. Tony is Professor of History at Princeton. He specialises in a great many things, but above all, the history of Renaissance Europe and uh, the reception of antiquity. He's the author of many, many books. He also writes for the New Republic, the New York Review of Books. But his latest book, um, which we're going to talk about today, is called Magus, The Art of Magic from Faustus to Agrippa. Welcome, Tony. Pleasure to see you in this context. So, Tony, you're known, very well known as a historian of the Renaissance, especially of humanism, of philology, of science. But now you've written a book about magic. Tell us, uh, how did you turn to that? Did Did it come organically from your previous work or did... Was there a magic wand that, that blew inspiration in your direction? No, I've, I've been interested in magic as long as I can remember. My, my two his teachers of history of science when I was an undergraduate, um, uh, Alan Debus, who was a pioneering historian of alchemy, and Noel Swerdlow, who was a great historian of astronomy, were both very interested in magic. Uh, and both gave me things to read. Uh, when I was very young, I read the magical book of Francis Yates, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. And though there's lots I would now disagree with in that book, it was one of those great books that just opens doors and opened doors for me and, and many other people into that world. Later, I had the chance to study at the Warburg Institute with Francis Yates and with her great friend uh, D.P. Walker, who was a, a, a also a great authority on the magical tradition, and to uh, work with other people. One more who I would cite is Peter Brown, our great historian of late antiquity at Princeton, who very, was very interested in the learned magic of the later Platonic Academy and of the Hermetic corpus, the pseudo-Egyptian corpus, and he was someone who um, sponsored discussions of that material. So I think I've been sickening for a book on magic probably all my life. 
Well, you are actually, you've already just raised something there that we're definitely going to talk about later, which is the relationship between magic and, and science and other fields of uh, intellectual endeavor, which is very, very contested uh, throughout your book. But one thing I wanted um, to ask first is, you know, I introduced you as a great historian of the Renaissance. That's what you're known as. And often you see people in their books say something, you know, like the Renaissance changed the world and then they'll cite a Grafton and I always put my palm to my face because I go well clearly they haven't read your books because for 40 years now you've been teaching us um, that the Renaissance didn't sweep away uh, ossified dull dead medieval system of knowledge but actually that the late medieval world was very rich dynamic and there were lots of continuities between the two and, and you start in the same vein here so can you tell us a little bit about late medieval magic you know especially for people who have only read or maybe even only seen the name of a rose and have a slightly strange idea of it what is the world of uh, medieval magic well i think the world of medieval magic is double on the one hand there were great scholars people re re recognized as great scholars who did all the things that erudite philosophers did uh, and the prime example is albertus magnus great dominican great theologian and philosopher and also a great student of magic even a bibliographer of magic and related fields who collected the texts that were being translated from arabic into latin and studied them and assessed them and on the other hand there'd be roger bacon who disapproves of magic and says many negative things about it, but whose pursuits include many of the things that one might now connect with the magical tradition uh, from astrology, which was a, a basic interest of his. As a friend of ours, Philip Nothoft and others have shown, he had a whole program for basically finding the logic of all of history in astrology, um, which involved some very sophisticated astronomy and connecting astronomy to astronomical events to historical events. Uh, but he was also interested, for example, in talismans, and he clearly thought of talismans as powerful objects that could draw down power from the heavens. Uh, he writes about this more than once, but particularly in his commentary on the Secret of Secrets, uh, an Islamic book that passed as Aristotle's for most people in the Middle Ages. So there's a lot of discussion about not just not only witchcraft, which is also beginning to be a, a popular subject in the 14th and especially the 15th centuries, but learned magic. And I, I start my, my uh, discussion of medieval magic in the book with Nicholas of Cusa, who is, uh, a, again, a serious philosopher and someone with deep interests in mathematics, who um, was also um, very, um, tries to sort out the magical tradition in a sermon on the three magi and to explain what parts of magic can be licit, what parts are illicit. And he's clearly both engaged with it as a learned pursuit that has a certain validity and also repelled by its possibility of admitting demonic influence. Right. Well, We'll come back to witches in a minute, but one, another thing you just said that I wanted to, to stop on is this Islamic influence, because even from your few pages, that comes across very strongly. And it comes across not just as influence, not just as this slightly kind of traditional story of, you know, over oh, Greeks did great things and then Islam kind of preserved it until Europe picked it up. It comes up as a really dynamic 
relationship. At one point, I think you talk about Roger Bacon seeing himself in an astrological arms race with the Mongols, which I love this idea of Bacon, Roger Bacon, you know, in the 13th century as a kind of Oppenheimer racing these Mongols who, of course, were building observatories, the likes of which were completely unknown in Europe. You know, no wonder he was jealous. No wonder he was emulating them. So could you say more a bit about that? What I mean, how was this relationship perceived? Was there a sense of, oh, we take some of this uh, Islamic material and then we clean it? Or was there a sense of we take it wholesale? Do you come across many discussions of that and with the talismans as well? I think it was much more in practice, much more wholesale, that it was quite clear at this point that the um, the vector of intellectual change came from the Islamic world to the European world. Um, that's what explains Albertus's, Albertus Magnus's fantastic effort of erudition. He's really sort of buried under a pile of texts which are of very varied kinds. They include translations from other languages and works originally written in Arabic, all then translated into Latin. There are technical works, there are theoretical works, there are actual horoscopes. And he's trying to sort all of this out. And I believe that absolutely that he rightly thought, as Roger Bacon rightly thought, that um, the Latin West was quite far behind um, farther eastern parts of the world. I mean, this of course was is an ancient idea. It goes back to um, goes back to Greek times, uh, and the first historian of philosophy who survives, Diogenes Laertius, says, "Well, it's wrong because the word philosophy is Greek, but everybody will tell you that philosophy all comes from Egypt and Babylon." But it wasn't just a cliche; it was true, and uh, I don't. We don't know how much was known as yet about the astronomical work that was being done in Eurasia. We know that by the 15th century, some of its conclusions had been transmitted to the West. We know that Copernicus had access to them in the 16th century. Um, some of them were used in the Gregorian calendar reform through a Syrian uh, Christian expert on calendar reform who came to Rome and was part of the commission that actually worked out the so that there there are points at which the conclusions are coming in uh, by the 17th century a good bit is known about it but my own guess is that there's an oral transmission that we don't have access to and there may also be a textual transmission that we just haven't found yet because this is a vast textual world that's only been very partly explored so my book I think starts with really the idea that Magi are around in Latin culture in the 13th and 14th centuries, um, the, the nature of their pursuits will develop and change. But you can see some of the basic features of what you see in the High Renaissance already present there. Yeah, I mean, this is something I've tr tried to do in my work as well, that you say, okay, well, Europeans, Christians could be very anti-Islamic. The idea of a Western intellectual tradition it didn't just, it, it, it's not that it didn't exist. It was literally unthinkable until way into the late 18th century. People just didn't think like that. But I mean, you talk about astrology and in some ways astrology, although it's only one of the magical practices you discuss, it's a kind of master discipline. It sets up a theoretical framework of contact between the celestial world or perhaps even the spiritual world and the terrestrial world. It's also the most instituted 
um, of, of all these practices. And this is something I've always wrestled with. You know, where do late medieval Renaissance scholars see the line between astrology and magic? I mean, if we even think about it today, you'd think your book should start with a list of what were magical disciplines. But actually, why should it? If, if a kid reads Harry Potter today... In Harry Potter, he studies astronomy, where there's seemingly no magical content at all. Or he does potions, where it's just seemingly the combination of natural things that creates the magical effect. So how was astrology conceptualized? Why was it so popular from the late medieval period? What, what, what was it useful for? Well, the, the basis of astrology is this point that, uh, that C.S. Lewis makes wonderfully in a book that's been mostly discarded, I think wrongly, The Discarded Image, a great old book that came from his teaching in which he explains that in the, in the geocentric universe of the Middle Ages and most of the Renaissance, um, the earth is the central place, but it is, con it is the battleground of superior forces, just in a way as the Latin West is where we live and what we're fighting for, but we know that it's inferior in many respects to other parts of the world. So the, 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 there are rays coming down from Celeste from the planets. Um, the question of how much these are influenced by actual beings depends on which astrologer you are, because there are astrologers who really seem to think of these as planetary influences. There are astrologers who think of them as spiritual influences associated with the planets. But everyone agrees that these rays are coming down and that the angles at which they're coming and the angles at which the planets see one another or interfere with one another are essential to computing the effect of these rays. So that's a very kind of technical, quantitative form of astrology. It involves a lot of computation, uh, and over time, that will become less and less true. So in the 16th and 17th centuries, you get lots of aids to computation, so an astrologer doesn't need to know nearly as much as they did in the 14th century or the 15th. So you, you need, but there is also the question of whether you can do anything to influence these this system of rays. Can you draw down favorable rays? Can you repel unfavorable rays? And that's where things begin to seem more like magic. If you're crafting talismans, which are in some way putting you in communication with different planets, doesn't that mean that you are actually communicating with a planetary spirit? And that's where the church begins really to worry. So magic is itself, and magic can involve uh, rituals of invoking planetary power. It can involve burning of incense, fumigation. It can involve all sorts of material and liturgical practices, which look a bit like those of the church, but aren't those of the church. And there too, um, that, that can create a lot of worry. So, um, so it's really hard to say whether astrology should be thought of as part of a magical world or part of a computational world. At its most rationalist, magic is, as, as I've said before, the economics of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. It's a, it tries to reduce everything that has happened, that is happening, that will happen to a single quantitative system. And of course, they're always a bit wrong in their kind their predictions, just like the economists, and and usually get better jobs and, and higher salaries for being wrong. But it is it is a, a wonderfully complex, tight system. The difference with the economics is honest economists will tell you the universe doesn't care about your such sunk costs. There's 
there's nothing you can do to influence the economy. And uh, one of my colleagues at Princeton is famous for inventing the random walk down Wall Street and explaining why you shouldn't be using rational means to uh, to file uh, to invest, but just following the market. The strong astrologers are never that that honest. They're always trying to tell you that there's a way to influence what the heavens are doing, and that's the magical bit of astrology. And it's very much there, even in someone like Roger Bacon, who is very much someone who does boundary work and wants to draw lines between what's licit and what's illicit. So uh, I do think magic, astrology has a, a magical, a big magical component in it. And we know that uh, as late as the 17th century, Tommaso Campanella orchestrated a kind of celestial dance to pre preserve the Pope from the ill effects of an eclipse. So this doesn't go away in, until deep in the age of what we used to call the new philosophy. Right. And that's because it's, I mean, since ancient Mesopotamian times, it's also had a deep political significance. And you just hinted at this, that, you know, astrology is in some ways the first exact science, as Otto Neugebauer taught us so long ago. And that's because these astrologers were given, they were consultants. And that's exactly the same in the late medieval period, in the Renaissance. And it totally demolishes the idea of his, you know, the intellectuals of his time sitting in the ivory tower, disconnected from society. These people are being called in to give advice to, to, to rulers, to kings, to cities. At the same time, the rulers and the kings are scared of it because what if they say, you know, something's going to go wrong or they say or or indeed they give them bad advice. So often we see them sending them letters saying, you know, you're going to get chopped to bits if you keep predicting this. How how does a discipline survive in such a precarious situation? Although perhaps economics teaches us that that's exactly when it survives and flourishes. It's necessary, and there isn't an alternative. There is no other way to predict the future rationally, uh, and I do think that that you know it is an apparently rational way of predicting the future. But you're right; it's always been political. In fact, in Mesopotamia, there was political astrology before there was personal astrology, which comes quite late. Uh, though in and and in the fifteenth, there's a wonderful book by Monica Azzolini, um, the Duke and the Stars, which traces in rich archival detail the way the Sforza dukes were followed the counsels of their astrologers, uh, and they were they were considered a bit um, beyond the norm by their contemporaries and were mocked a bit for uh, you know doing things like going out in bad weather because the astrologer told them they had to. But it is clear that these are the rulers of a major Italian state, and they are deeply dependent on what professional astrologers are telling them. And one can see this in all the documentation. Uh, the Florentine Republic, that bastion of rationality, passed the, ba the baton of command to officers on astrologically chosen days. So, uh, so this is this political astrology again remains highly significant until deep in the 17th and in some areas deep in the 18th century. Right, and it was seen as useful. You mentioned Monica Zalini's book, and and others like Michael Shank have shown that the kind of astronomy that leads to Copernicus basically is really only institutionalized on the coattails of astrology, that you do it just to get an astrological result. I mean, you mentioned Florence, and we're going to go to Florence in a second. But first, I do want to ask you about women and witchcraft, because 
I mean, there's a slight kind of, again, a, a bit of a textbook stereotype that goes over Middle Ages. It was always the old men in their universities or monastic orders. And then the Renaissance comes and suddenly it's worldly and courtly and there's scope for women to participate in intellectual life. And, and a long time ago, back in the early 80s, you and Lisa Jardine really skewered that idea. You said, you know, we mustn't believe this rhetoric of a Renaissance. They could be as pretty br brutal about women's intellectual capacities. And in some ways, in, when it comes to magic, perhaps what comes out is there were maybe more opportunities for female participation in the medieval period before it became a more formal learned discipline for the magus. I think there are a couple of areas. One is, a, is alchemy. And alchemy being a kind of recipe-based um, field, which in some ways fit female kinds of learning is often practiced by women in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries. Now, I think alchemy is a bit different from magic. It's connected. And some of the magi, Tritamius, for example, is one of my figures, um, wrote very influentially about alchemy. But on the whole, alchemy, as uh, some great historians of science, Lawrence Principe, William Newman, and others, uh, my own wonderful colleague Jennifer Rampling have taught us, was a highly practical um, form, uh, art form, which involved metallic crystalline chemistry and replicable experiments of quite sophisticated kinds. And that's really why I see it as something different, even though there are certainly magicians who do alchemy. And that's why alchemy, it seems to me, survives magic. Alchemy remains a basic part of high learning about nature into the 17th and 18th centuries in a way that magic really doesn't. Uh, and that's because it actually has this deep empirical or even, uh, to use an anachronistic term, experimental component. And there are lots of women alchemists, and we have good studies about them. What I haven't been able to find are female magi. There's, uh, um, there are certainly fake alchemists. There's a wonderful study by Tara Numidal of a, of a female charlatan uh, alchemist, which is beautifully done. Uh, and charlatanry is definitely part of the magical tradition. It's a performative tradition, and it involves deception and fakery and in performance. But um, there's one wonderful article very early in Carlo Ginsburg's career. He discovered a, a, a woman who had learned some high magic from a poet. But there, there really hasn't been a lot turned up uh, of female efforts on this high magical kind. Astrology, again, um, becomes more and more female when there are more and more calculating aids. So by the time in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, as our friend Margaret Guida is showing, by the time that you have lots of tables and lots of almanacs and books with little volvels, little wheels that you can actually turn to do the calculations, um, men without much formal training and women without much formal training can do astrology, uh, quite turn out horoscopes and do interrogations where you ask the heavens, what, what will be the fate if I accept a marriage proposal or go on a trip? So many, many more women come into that part of the field then. But I haven't yet found, and I would be delighted to, to be shown one, a woman doing incense rituals um, to draw down the power of Saturn with a talisman in the way the men do. Uh, and thinking of Lisa, I find myself, I can almost hear her saying, well, of course, they were much too sensible. 
Right. And on alchemy, that's really interesting that in a sense, alchemy can be separated from a broader magical worldview in a way that maybe other disciplines can't, because I work on Isaac Newton and we we try and date some of his manuscripts by the exact type of acid burn on the manuscript. It's our best way. But of course, he didn't have a broader magical worldview, but he was still taking alchemy deadly seriously. As yeah, an I think Newton's practice. worldview is really very different. It's hard objects hitting one another. I mean, it really is kind of the opposite of a magical worldview. Um, but then speaking of worldview, this is where we really come to your Renaissance figures. And we start with Marsilio Ficino. And Ficino, if people have heard of him, it's usually in slightly kind of dull histories of philosophy where he's described as a Renaissance Platonist. And of course, he translated Plato and so on. But your Ficino, like the Ficino of some other great scholars, like the late M.J.B. Allen, he's much more interesting than just a philosopher. He's almost a kind of self-help guru. Um, for him, magic is a worldview. Um, and it's not that the Renaissance has come and he's doing something brand new. He's almost putting together all these late medieval practices you describe and then synthesizing them into a philosophy that can be applied less to, to, to whole crowds or a whole church, but more to the individual, as I say, to self-help. And especially self-help for people like himself, that's to say scholars. He's, I love the bit where he suggests that uh, scholars shouldn't have wild sex and those over 70 years of age should choose a young girl who is healthy, beautiful, cheerful and temperate. And when you are hungry and the moon is waxing, suck her milk. I mean, this is not the stuff of modern philosophy courses. Um, Some might say it is the stuff of modern PhD supervision. Uh, he also says you can suck the blood of a young man for the, the same way. But uh, but yeah, I, I think this is this is right. What Ficino? I mean, everyone adds their bit, and what Ficino adds is the, the late antique Neoplatonic philosophy, which gives this a kind of coherence that it doesn't have in other treatments. Now, the thing about Ficino is he was a very great scholar. He could read and correct this incredibly, the very difficult Greek of Plotinus and, and Porphyry, the main sources for this, and he was able to translate them. That's an astonishing accomplishment. And he does that. Uh, and I think, again, there's this often a feeling that you had to be fairly silly to think about, to see magic as valid. You know, the clever clever boots like Machiavelli and Guicciardini would never have seen it, never have seen that. But Ficino is a brilliant scholar. He is a, a serious philosopher of a systematic kind. Uh, late antique kind, Platonic, but with a lot of Aristotelian method. Uh, but he is also, as you say, the author of this book on bringing threefold life down from the heavens, which is really one of the best sellers of the Latin learned world in the 15th and 16th centuries. It goes through edition after edition. Many copies of it are marked up. You see echoes of it everywhere. And this really is, in its core, a book about how to turn, turn astrology and astral magic back up against 
the heavens and use the heavens in order to improve your your life. You also use life on Earth, and a lot of it. There's aromatherapy. There's music therapy. Um, you know, you're supposed to go for walks in beautiful places. Nobody can object to that. But at the but it is very much a therapy, richly therapeutic, powerfully individualist view of magic, and it's one that really does fit a period in which egos were often not small and people were self-obsessed in a way that I think even we look at with awe. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Uh, yeah, well, the modern academic uh, <laughs> needs no rivals in self-obsession. But this is, uh, I mean, you're, the layers of multiculturalism, to use a kind of buzzword, are, are amazing here, because what you have now here is a late antique Greek, although really also near Eastern tradition, if you're talking about people like Porphyry, being placed on top of and used to systematize an Islamic tradition that itself had been somewhat Christianized in, in the Latin West. And then the next layer with Ficino's friend Giovanni Fico della Mirandola is to add something else into this amazing multicultural mix, which is Jewish traditions and especially the Kabbalah. And, and we're really, we're not talking about what Madonna was into here. No, okay. no red bracelets. This is a moment in the Jewish world in which the Kabbalistic tradition is exploding in Safed and in, in Palestine and elsewhere, and in which a great deal is being written of Kabbalistic commentary and treatises. And Pico is fascinated by that. He gets help um, learning some Hebrew and accessing these sources from Yochanan Alamana, who's a very serious Jewish philosopher, but above all from Flavius Mithridates, his uh, his friendly acquaintance, who is the son of a rabbi, who becomes a genuine Christian convert as much as as far as we can see, and who genuinely seems to believe that the Kabbalah and Christianity can fit together with one another, that they are compatible. Uh, and there's been uh, wonderful projects on this. He translated thousands of pages of Kabbalah for Pico, uh, very difficult Hebrew being translated into very difficult Latin. Um, Pico may not himself have made a lot of headway with these texts, but certainly he is the one who accredits the Kabbalah as a central part of Jewish tradition. There had always been in the Jewish world the idea that there were two traditions, the written Torah and the oral Torah. 
And what Pico does is really to identify the oral Torah with Kabbalah instead of as it would have been identified by, by Jews mostly with Talmud and the learning of the rabbis and the great rabbinical commentators on scripture. And that's a view because Kabbalah um, does have many elements which can fit Christian mysticism and uh, it is monotheistic, unlike the, the pagan magics. Um, it, and it does offer keys to understanding scripture as the Hebrew scripture, which are closely associated again with magical techniques. There's huge debate. Sholem would never hear of the identification of Kabbalah, the great Gershom Sholem, who really revived the modern study of Kabbalah. But people are much more willing now to see it as a big, loose tradition. Things came into it and things came out of it. I was very struck to find that uh, Flavius Mithridates, Pico's teacher, had actually translated a, an Arabic treatise on astrological talismans. And in the preface, he tells us about one that his father used to make and sell to pregnant women. And at that point, I think it becomes clear that Pico was learning a group of things which probably involved practices as well as theories. And Pico is a great publicist. He, he is going to hold a great di disputation for scholars from all of Europe and in, in Rome, in which he will di dispute 900 theses from all areas of knowledge. And some of them are very provocatively phrased to suggest that magic and Kabbalah are really disciplines that Christianity needs. And all of that, um, all of that gets him in, in some hot water. And he ends up, after running away from Rome and being caught in France, he ends up in Florence under the protection of Lorenzo de' Medici. He himself abandons many of these views and writes the first great critique of astrology. Uh, a work which Kepler read and took very seriously, and a work which has never been really seriously studied. There's a very erudite um, student of astrology and philosophy, Daryl Rutkin, who is slowly building a full study adequate to what Pico did. But in it's that is perhaps less influential than what he did before when he created the synthesis. And I try to show in the book that he also very cleverly takes nips and tucks in the Christian tradition to try to suggest that the uh, St. Augustine, for example, who made a fundamental uh, opposition between magic and Christianity, hadn't really quite meant that. He shifts the terminology around in, in a very adroit and clever way. So Pico has all of these, like Ficino, has great philological skills, great historical skills. Um, he uh, he didn't, of course, write an oration on the dignity of man, as he is always said to have done. There's a great book by Brian Copenhaver that proves this in, in, in really splendid detail. But he did very influentially suggest that the magical tradition had a deep Jewish element, which proved its compatibility with Christianity. Right. And I mean, we're now into territory of things I've worked on. And as you said, not only is this textually incredibly difficult with Hebrew on top of a Greek, but behind it, as you hinted, and we can only ever have hints, is a pan-Mediterranean oral tradition where you would have a Jew 
learning Arabic traditions, applying them in practice, as you said, talismans to to uh, pregnant women. And I mean, we know the same, say, the history of mathematics and what became algebra, the abacus schools of northern Italy. They weren't the schools of northern Italy. They were the schools of a North African pan-Mediterranean tradition of which we only have a tiny textual remnant in which heroic scholars try and reconstruct from from those remnants. But sticking with Pico, I mean, and nothing better demonstrates the ambiguity of a magical tradition than the great difference between Ficino and Pico, which is that whereas Ficino believed in astrology to such an extent that he once insisted the position of Saturn prevented him from walking to Pico's house, Pico was the great critic of astrology, not just in the 15th century, but really the model through to Newton if not beyond. And and you mentioned some scholars who are working on this. I mean, this isn't central to your book, but I can't help asking, why do you think Pico, for all his other interests, reacts so strongly against astrology? When on the, and he critiques it as kind of pagan superstition, while at the same time, he's so keen on seemingly the same aspects of pagan ancient wisdom. Well, I think in his later years, he really does change. One very important fact is the impact of Savonarola, who, again, draws a very strict boundary between Christianity. It probably it's a, it pretty much defines what a strict boundary could be in this period between Christianity and anything else. And I do think that that sharpens his ability to see that uh, there are historical ways in which Christianity and astrology don't fit one another. Uh, the second point, I think, is that uh, he is simply um, a very serious scholar and, uh, and, and natural philosopher, and that meant that he went into the same set of questions that Roger Bacon and others had looked at, whether you could connect astronomical events to events on Earth and just came up with a very different set of views. He came up with the view that, on the whole, most of these uh, most of these connections didn't work, that mostly you couldn't find empirical evidence to prove that, for example, the conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn that take place every 20 years had corresponded with particularly important events through history. So it's partly an empirical disagreement, and he has the advantage of coming in at the end of the 15th century and having a much richer record of sources for ancient and medieval history than Roger Bacon had or than others had in the 13th century. Um, though some of them um, you know, do, do make very sophisticated arguments about astronomy and history, but I think Pico just has more material to work with. Uh, I do feel Pico is, is one of these intellectuals who is just all who gets through incredible amounts of work in very short time, comes up with a theory, but then moves on to something which can be quite different. And it's hard for us to see, uh, to, you know, we want to find continuity, we want to find some sort of coherence in the person. But I think he, he was one of these people who really moves in his life using the foundations he's built up, but using them in, in different ways. I really wonder what he would have said about Jewish material if he had lived longer. 
and or whether right. he would have come back to saying no Jewish and Christian material are less compatible than I thought. And and he moved on, but the world in a sense didn't. It's amazing. I've been reading some 18th century German philologists recently, and these really were academic egomaniacs who thought each one of them thought they were the most original person in the world. And yet they're still using Pico's arguments from three centuries earlier. It's incredible what influence he had. But this emphasis on kind of cognitive dissonance, I mean, it's something I love about all your work, unlike so many intellectual historians who look for grand coherence in everything that they read, you're very willing to show that your people were human beings and we don't need to find grand coherence in everything they said. And that comes out with their attitude to Judaism and Jewish magic. I mean, as you as you note, a lot of Jews are persecuted for supposed tortured, for, for supposedly magical practices. And yet at the same time, you have this quasi-philo-Semitic reverence for the Kabbalah. And that's in Johannes Trithemius as well, your, your next kind of, perhaps probably the hero of your book, your longest chapter is about him. You, you yourself speak of his sovereign inconsistency, which I love. It's a beautiful phrase. On the one hand, he's obsessed with witches. He's obsessed with finding out, can they really remove a man's penis? Or do they just delude him into thinking that they had done so? On the other hand, he himself practiced the summoning of spirits. So tell us more about this inconsistency. How is this a product of a particular time and place, of a particular way of working? Oh, I, th I think with Tritamius, I still don't feel as if I have a deep understanding of his, his way of thinking. This is a monastic reformer from a Benedictine uh, a, a, Bened a circle of Benedictine monasteries, a congregation that were trying to reform. And he is the great leader of Benedictine reform in the 15th century, the one who, say, who, who wants to make rules, the one who wants to get the Benedictines working again, copying manuscripts and not just enjoying good food and wine. Uh, and that seems to, that's a basic part of his, his, his work. And there's good studies of that. Yet he is a Christian mystic. And I'm able to show from manuscripts in, in the book, uh, again, following very good uh, work by others, that he, he practices this particular form of magic known as the Ars Notoria, which involves using um, uh, ascetic practices and contemplation of diagrams to basically enable yourself to see spiritual things, including the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that would normally be seen as quite different from magic. Uh, you know, until you know, say Keith Thomas, you know, pointed out in the Great Religion and the Decline of Magic, aren't they actually doing all the same things? Uh, and it is rather similar when you read his account. It does seem rather magical, and yet at the same time, he is fascinated by Kabbalah. He doesn't know as much about it as he would like, but he's fascinated by it. He is um, fascinated by cryptography, and he is the the great uh, the great master of written of written cryptographies in the in the 15th and 16th centuries. His his uh, his work is used very heavily, and his steganography, the book that's actually printed after his death, um, where he teaches you how to conceal that you're sending a message at all, is all disguised um, rather thinly, as people have pointed out, um, as communicating with uh, with devils and angels and getting them to carry messages, uh, often of a rather um, sexual intent for you. Uh, 
all of this, it's. I, I actually think that was just very clever steganography. He managed to distract everyone until uh, the 17th century, and it's really only in the 20th century that Thomas Anst and Jim Reeds cracked his steganography simultaneously. Uh, but it, it seems to me that this this is somebody who um, is simultaneously very adroit at important pursuits. Cryptography is one of the important things that Magi and figures like Magi did. It's the first age of resident diplomats. There's a it's, a it's an age when bureaucracies are growing. There's a huge production of paper, a lot of it at one point or another outside the control of the court or the government that needs it. So you need a way to transmit it secretly in a world where every courier is stopped and everything the courier is, is, is carrying is looked at. Uh, gentlemen did read each other's mail in the 15th and 16th centuries. So Trithemius creates the, the this uh, wonderful systems for writing what looks like a prayer, but is actually a secret message or seeming to communicate with devils. And yet, uh, one of his great works is the forged history of the ancient Germans. Um, in which he fills in the space, which we still don't find it easy to fill in, before they enter the Roman Empire and, and basically uh, take it over and destroy it. And he imagines them as a people led by priests who are magicians and who communicate with the gods and do astrology and perform spells. And it's actually impossible not to escape the idea that he's talking about himself and that he's imagining himself as the kind of priest magician who, in antiquity, led the Franks into across rivers and territories and into the, the Roman Empire. Um, so what he re what he brings, I think, first of all, is this very effective cryptography, and this uh, shows that um, these magical pursuits actually do have, you know, do seem to be connected with a real function. But also, he just has this wonderful way of connecting magic and miracle. He writes histories of cloisters in which magic and miracle both take place. He has, in his history of the Germans, magic and religion are tightly connected. So, and somehow, I think he's the one who gives the idea that it's going to be possible to synthesize all of this, to bring it all together, which then inspires Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, who uh, communicated with him and who writes the great synthesis of Renaissance magic. So I think he's a, he's a very important figure. He's also a great bibliophile and collector of books. He carries on that effort of bringing together magical texts as other important texts and making sense of them. Yeah, well, I mean, like all great historians, you don't draw any uh, easy presentist lessons. But if there is one, it's that perhaps we should all acknowledge the sovereign inconsistency in ourselves, that we're not as uh, consistent as we tend to, to, to think. We're coming to the end of our time, so I want to finish with two slightly bigger questions. You just mentioned Trithemius being a bibliophile, and this is definitely that's something that runs like a thread through this book, as through many of your other books, that magic was a deeply bookish enterprise. And, and not just in practice, but even as it was thought about. I mean, you mentioned throughout the book the Faustus myth. And the thing I always remember is that when Marlowe's Faustus is begging Mephistopheles not to take him, he cries out, oh, burn my books. Right? So clearly there's this cultural association. Almost too much reading is going to get you into this into this magical stuff, into, into chasing the devil, into dangerous curiosity. 
I mean, do you want to say a little more about that? Of course, this is a period we talked about the continuities between late medieval and Renaissance, but one thing that happens in the middle, if you like, of your period is this, this the print revolution and the explosion of books. What effect does that have on magic, on the magic tradition, how people pursue or even maybe choose not to pursue magic? Oh, it clearly has a huge impact, but so did the great explosion of the 12th and 13th centuries before that, and probably also the paper explosion, which made manuscripts cheaper and, 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 easier, to, and easier to produce in large numbers, though, of course, printing multiplies the number of books you can produce radically. So I do feel as if there is a, a phenomenon that hasn't been enough studied. They understood this in the Enlightenment. So in the Enlightenment, some philosopher worried that books will be burned. That's the sort of thing that worried Voltaire. Others are more worried that too many books will make us insane. And the, you know, the problem is pedantry and 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 not 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 so much censorship. And it seems to me that they had so they had a point that someone like Albertus Magnus is like the sorcerer's apprentice. He's he he launches himself into this flood of new material from the east, and much of what he brings back is quite problematic from the standpoint of the church. And it will take the church a long time to elaborate criteria for dealing with it and to digest it. And this is something that takes centuries, and in in many periods of which the pope himself and other great prelates are actually involved with magic, even as they're trying to limit and define it. So this is this is something that happens in worlds of learning you dive in thinking you're going to find something great and you know it's a bit a bit the way in which studying cryptography as bill sherman has shown turned people into baconians and you know trying to show that shakespeare that was actually bacon and that he'd encrypted his his message but i do think that printing just makes that far 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 more serious you don't know what you have in print there's so many books um, they're so oddly attributed uh, uh, to writers as they had been in the manuscript age and often just agglomerated. So it's really hard to know what's genuine and what's false. There, is, there are bestsellers that we've rather forgotten that are very pro-magical uh, or pro-astrological. One of the great ones is Giovanni Nani or Annius of Viterbo's Faked Histories of the Ancient World, which come out right at the end of the 15th century and which goes go through edition after edition and are tremendously determinative of people's picture of the history of the ancient world down to the end of the 16th century and beyond. And for him, it is quite clear that Noah used astrology to predict the deluge. Uh, and that's an idea which then has an immense posterity, thanks to him. So print doesn't select for the best or the truest or the right things. And it also gives you the power to publicize yourself. Agrippa I think was a very, a very curious and interesting person, but nowhere more brilliant than, as Ian McLean shows, than in putting this great author portrait on the front of his book, which really gives it, you know, the, the sense of this is not some anonymous thing. This is the work of this great man. And that, of course, becomes something that then uh, becomes more and more normal in efforts to 
make a work canonical like Shakespeare or Johnson's poetry, or you know, you put the author's portrait has a has a function in that. In the Middle Ages, authors' portraits tend to be quite small. They're in the first initial of the text, and there's a tiny little face which it's hard to look at. The author's portrait and Agrippa is huge. It takes up the whole front, uh, takes up the whole uh, central space of the title page, and becomes a model for Cardano and other great self-publicizers. So, yeah, the magical tradition. I, I think Tritanius was also quite a brilliant self-publicizer, and letting people see enough of his work to shock them without explaining what it was was a, a good way to get known, even though it could also get him into a certain amount of hot water. So, yeah, the print world. It's a world of performance. It's a world of. Uh, it, it's a world in which media are uncontrolled. There's no way in which censorship can ever catch up with the with the, the, what's been let out of the bottle by print and uh, all of that i think in the 15th and 16th centuries tends to work for print for magic rather than against it tends to spread it and make it look credible and put it in people's hands as if it is something solid and learned and credible well that leads to my absolutely final question which is that uh, one of the beautiful things about your book, I think, is that you resist the temptations of previous literature on re Renaissance magic, which is either to say, oh, well, it was all nonsense and charlatanry, or to say, oh, this is the origins of modern science. You actually, you don't really get involved in those debates very much at all. But since we have you here, one can't help asking, for all their self promotion for all their successful maneuvering, did the mag guy fail in their main aim of making magic a kind of central component of learned culture? Because you, you, you have a grip, I think you quote him at one point, kind of railing against the universities, but in some ways he's railing against an old model of the universities because at exactly the same time you had Vesalius doing anatomy that would lead to Harvey and you have mathematics being institutionalized that would lead to Galileo and Newton, and you have the alchemy that we talked about that would lead to Robert Boyle. So is there a sense that, you know, these people were certainly not nobodies, they were famous, their work sold well, but in the long run, their project didn't quite succeed? Or would you put it differently? No, I, I think it's true. I think their project didn't succeed. I do think that there are vast numbers of intellectual projects that don't succeed, but seem very urgent and powerful. And Colin Kidd's great book, The World of Mr. Kasaubin, shows that uh, Eliot's Mr. Kasaubin was a fictional version of the learned cleric in every single minister's residence across England. They were all writing keys to all, to all mythologies. And again, that now looks sort of sad and laughable now. Uh, as it does in the course of Eliot's book, but it didn't for a long time. So I do think it's important to look at lost causes. I guess I would make the case that Yeats had a point, but it wasn't quite the way she, but no, I wouldn't make it the same way. There's a recent book by um, Carl Wennerland and Frederick Albert and Johnson. Uh, in which they talk about, it's a sort of history of ideas about humanity and its ability to exploit the world. And they describe what they call cornucopianism. 
the idea that the world, if properly used, can produce vast, wonderful things for humanity. And they connect this with Bacon. They also take it back to Thomas More. But I'm inclined to think that the magical tradition and its rhetoric had something to do with the rise of cornucopianism. And cornucopianism now looks deeply worrying. I mean, it's, you know, cornucopianism is what, you know, led in, in the English colonies in the New World to the idea that they could basically be terraformed, that if you cut down the forests and built English towns, you would actually change the horrible American climate to a British one, which I may say has never happened yet. Uh, but nonetheless, I do think that cornucopianism mattered, especially in the more chaste forms that Bacon and others gave it. it was a, an enormously powerful vision of humanity's relation to nature. It was one that was formulated really, I think, a bit before it could be uh, put into practice or proved that this was going to be the case, but that doesn't make that unimportant. And cornucopianism is with us to this day um, in the world of, for example, the economists who say, you know, we've always developed our way out of every scrap and we'll, uh, demographic or otherwise, and we'll develop our, ourselves out of the climate problem that we've managed to cause. So there, I mean, once again, I'm not, I'm not saying as I probably would have when I was young, when we believed in cornucopianism and, you know, we thought this might be, might be true, that this is a, 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 an argument with some validity. But I think it's a really historically important view. And I do think the magicians play a part in making that part of the discourse. Um, nowadays in America, we'd say they move the Overton window. Uh, to suggest, you know, after a time of plague and population decline, and, and it takes a long time to refill those echoing em empty cities like Florence, which don't fill out again to their walls until around 1500 or later. Um, this is a view which is very optimistic. And it's clear that that's a view which captures a lot of patrons, rulers, explorers, conquistadors, and others in the 15th, in the 16th and 17th century. So I would give the Magi a bit of, a bit of I don't know if credit is the right word, but I'd, I'd connect them with the rise of cornucopianism. Wonderful. Well, certainly your book is a cornucopia of, of fascinating, not just stories, but also interpretations of Renaissance magic. And so all that remains to say is to thank you, Tony Grafton, for, for chatting to me today. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thanks to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Leila Ishmael and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. 
I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.